0: There was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Eustace. He was insufferable. He was overindulgent. He was cruel. He was a bratty little boy. And this Eustace, as some of you may know, well, he gets magically drawn into an enchanted realm. He gets drawn into a world called Narnia, and he gets drawn in with two other kids, Lucy and Edmund, and they find themselves on the deck of a ship on the high seas, and the name of that ship is the Dawn Treader. You guys are with me this morning. Good. Good. I'm speaking, of course, here of C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Now, Eustace is just nasty. He's spoiled. He's intolerable. Or as Edmund puts it so brilliantly, he's a record stinker. He's a record stinker. At one point in their adventures on Dragon Island, Eustace goes off by himself. Everyone else is working. They're pulling their load, and he just wants nothing of it because he's too good for that. So he heads on out, and he finds something brilliant and shining. He finds a dragon's hoard. He finds a cave shimmering with golden treasure, and he's giddy. He's giddy in his greediness because he's alone. It's all his. It's mine. So he puts on this golden bracelet and just overwhelmed by it all, he ends up taking a nap, falling asleep on his treasure. Now I was seven when I first read this book and seven when I first came across this scene and, and it, it's, it's haunted me. It's been one of those scenes that's stuck deep, deep in my mind. And Lewis writes this in there. He says, sleeping on a dragon's hoard... With greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he became a dragon himself. See, when Eustace wakes up from his little nap, he wakes up a dragon. And that golden bracelet that he put on his arm in celebration is now cutting deep into his swollen dragon flesh. His selfish actions, his greedy undertakings, his treasure has now changed him into a beast. But rather than freeing him, his greed and golden bracelet has become a shackle and the source of all sorts of suffering. So it's brilliant. The simple imaginative story that Lewis writes, it shows us the profound truth of the formative power of greed. And the profound truth of the formative, soul-shaping power of its polar opposite. Generosity. Eustace has practiced greed for years, and now he is turned into a dragon. Might we be turning into dragons? I know that might sound a little silly, but it doesn't mean it's not true. Might we be turning into dragons? Or might we be turning... Into something quite different. Might we become like the dragon slayer? See, both greed and generosity are formative, soul-shaping. They change us, degree by glorious or dragonish degree. The scriptures tell us in Second Corinthians chapter nine, verses six through nine, that God loves a cheerful giver. He's a glad God, and He wants us to be glad joyful, mirth-filled givers, to become like him. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us to look at the world with generous eyes, to have an abundance mindset rather than a scarcity mindset. Jesus says, look, perceive, apprehend the world this way, see the abundant goodness of God, your Father. I mean, look upon the lilies. He's arrayed them in incredible splendor. And look upon the ravens. They're not want for food in any way, shape or form. See, Jesus is, is bragging on his Father, saying, "Look at the vast generosity of the Father who sits in the heavens and smiles over this earth. This is don't be don't be anxious. If God takes such good care of those lilies, he will, he will dress you. If he takes care of those silly crows, I mean how much more you? You are a child of the living God. He will take care of you. So don't be anxious. Don't worry. Like, don't freak out and grab frantically at all the things that you can hold on to. Rather, live generously, live joyfully. Because God is generous and his abundant grace ought to make us a generous people. See, there's a number of practices that we as followers of Jesus are trying to enter into, trying to get into not only our mind but into our very bodies. And one of them is a practice of joyful generosity. And joyful generosity is the practice of gladly giving to others what God has gladly given to you. Gladly giving to others what God has gladly given to you. Notice it's not just giving to others. Because there's a way to be like Scrooge and to give and like hold on to it as you're like releasing it, right? Without any joy, without any delight, without any wonder in the soul. But we are called to gladly give because God has gladly given to us. He hasn't been like, well, I guess I'll save you. It's like, here's my son, Drink of these fountains of joy. And it's with that kind of posture we are called to give. So what is Jesus doing here? He's teaching us to live in accordance with our spiritual DNA to be like our Heavenly Father. Joyful generosity is the practice of gladly giving to others what God has gladly given to you. And with that said, I should also say this. Apprentices of Jesus are weird. Like we're strange And we should be strange in this world. We're right side up in an upside down world and we're going against the grain of how the world operates. We should live counter culturally. This means that Christians use and participate in things like power and sex and money in very different ways. Jesus spoke often to his apprentices about money and all the problems that money has minted um, and so we should talk about some of these things, lay them out, open them up. The first one is, is simply this: uh, greed is green. Greed is green, and what I mean by that is greed is camouflage. It hides itself from us. We rarely think, "Man, I'm greedy." And we usually think, "Man, I'm I'm pretty generous. I'm pretty good." Uh, This week I've been thinking a lot about uh, Pastor Tim Keller um, who uh, was lead pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in in Manhattan and someone I learned a great deal from over the years. Just a great man of God and he's home with Jesus now. Um, He passed this week into glory and now he's seeing face to face the king he preached about. What a thing. So I was thinking about about him and I remember him one time saying this. He made this observation He said in all of his years of ministry, you know, people came and talked to him about all these different things. He couldn't remember one time in his decades upon decades of ministry when somebody came, sat in his office and said, you know, I have an inordinate love of money. Will you help me with my greed? And I was like, that is so true. In my last 14 years here, I've talked with people about all sorts of things. All these different kinds of questions come in. Addictions, lust, lying, like all the things, all the things. Never once has somebody said, I feel so greedy. Would you help me unclench my fist and give to the needy? Like not, not once can I remember that. See, greed is a shy and a slippery devil. It's a well-oiled devil we can't get our hands around. It just doesn't like to be seen. It's cloaked in our lives. And here's what's so dangerous about that is greed's a big deal. Greed is so deadly because it trains us and it forms our hearts to put our hopes in things that will fail us by the design or nature of that thing itself. Greed trains and forms our hearts to put our hopes in, our trust in things that will, by their very design, crush us or could never fulfill us because they can't carry a God-like mantle because they are something within creation and not the creator himself. So being greedy, being selfish is the very opposite of what God is like. I mean, all you have to do is just open up some charles dickens right you open up the christmas carol and you see the opposite of the incarnate god jesus you see the opposite of him in scrooge you have this tiny hearted grumpy curmudgeonly guy who's just clenching himself tight who has no love and no compassion and jesus is the polar opposite Massive, cosmic-sized heart, arms spread open wide to bring people in and to lavish them with his love. To be greedy is to live in a way that is opposite of our Savior and our Creator. And so Jesus wants us to have us see money as money, not as some kind of master. He wants us to see money in a way in which we can then become like our generous Master. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look closer at Matthew chapter 6, the words of Jesus. So um, let's get our bearings here. What we're about to read comes from the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus's shimmering manifesto on what it looks like to be an apprentice of Jesus. Go read it this week. Get it in you. It's so good. I'm going to pick up at verse 19. It says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. He's contrast he's contrasting two ways of life, two ways of living. Here's how to live the good life, the kingdom life, and here's how to live the foolish life, the broken ways of this world. You know, he's contrasting these two things and he gets to this topic of, of money. And he says there's two options. There's just two options. You can either lay up treasure on earth or lay up treasure in heaven. You can invest for the short term, live for the things that are fading, or you can invest in what is eternal, live for what is everlasting. Now, as you process this and think through what Jesus says, one of the questions comes up, at least it rose in my soul this week, is like, well, how do we do that? Because we know how to store up treasures on earth, don't we? Like, We're a pretty affluent community in a very affluent city. We know how to store up treasures on earth. We gather stuff. We know how to grow money with our various funds. We know how to calculate a winning ROI. For some of us, it's a job. For others of us, it's a hobby. But how do you do it regarding heaven? How do you store up treasures in heaven? Well, you live generously. And the Apostle Paul helps us here with this teaching in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17 through 19, uh, teaches us how to do this. So here's what he says. He's talking to his protege, Timothy, helping Timothy lead the churches. And so here's what he says. Well, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Notice he's going to tell them how to live, but then he links it right away with who God is and how God loves because we can only operate rightly if we know who God is and how he loves. So he gets the order right. Verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let scripture interpret scripture. Paul is talking about what Jesus is talking about. Be rich in good works. Seek the good of others. Store up treasures in heaven by living as a citizen of heaven here on earth. Live in light of eternity right now in the temporal time frame in which you live. Give generously to others and bless others because God has first blessed you. We love because he has first loved us. So good deeds, benevolence, worthy enterprises, meeting various needs, feeding the poor, clothing the cold, blessing our neighbor, investing in the mission of the spread of the gospel and the spread of the kingdom. These are the treasures that are laid up in heaven. These are the things that, that will not burn out, that will not evaporate. These things will live and last forever. The treasures on earth, they have a a split-second life frame, so to speak. In the grand span of existence, they, they are here just for a moment. And Jesus uses his clear reason highlighting the temporal nature of the riches we so often cling to. And, uh, you know, on, on deathbeds, people will end up talking about the things that, that meant the most. It's, it's the, 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 the situations of most gravity and joy that, that rise out of them, or, or fear. So when someone's on their deathbed, you, you don't have somebody who, say, who says, uh, Man, that that second generation of the third iPhone. I'm so thankful for that. Like that thing is so outmoded, so outdated, that is nowhere on anyone's mind. It's so faded, it is time stamped, it's here for a moment, and then it's gone. But what they do say is, thank you for my family. Or I wish I had it all over to do again to invest in my family, or to say to my mom, or to say to my dad. It's those kinds of things, those relationships that show forth our design as image bearers. It's those things that rise when someone is on their deathbed. And Jesus here uses clear reason, again, highlighting the temporal nature of the riches we so often cling to. He talks about their expiration date. Look at the words he uses. Moths, rust, thieves. A moth, what's that? Well, it's a symbol of destruction, particularly of clothing. Clothing symbolizing wealth and status and worth and identity. And if you find your your status or your worth or your identity in externals and the things you wear, man, those things will be eaten up. They're not going to last. Rust. In Greek, is literally eating or the eater. Rust implies that the hoarded treasure, even the longest lasting metal sorts of treasure, they're all subject to corrosion. All is subject to loss. Thieves breaking in. The, the Greek verb here literally means to dig through a wall because the Jewish people back at this time would, would build their houses often with, out of mud bricks so thieves could dig in from the side to steal treasures. In other words, all can be taken from you. All. Earthly treasures will not survive the teeth of time. They will be eaten by entropy. Earthly treasures will not survive the teeth of time. They will be eaten by entropy. And so Jesus calls us out. And he does this brilliantly. He's so good at at wordsmithing, creating these principles, saying these principles. Um, he lays this out so well. This is the truth of truths. He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. I, I admit, like, for the longest time, when I heard that, I only saw one side of the coin. Because what he's just put forward is this beautiful currency of reality. And this coin has two sides. So I want to talk about one side, and then I'll talk about the other. The first side of what he says is this. Money exposes your heart. Money displays what's in your heart. You know, it's like in those those crime dramas where they're trying to find the, the bad guys and they're always like, follow the money trail. Follow the money trail. We'll find clues there of where they are and who they are. Follow the money trail. Because if you want to know what somebody really values, if you want to know what's important to them, follow the money, look at the budget, examine the books, check the receipts. If you want to know what's in someone's heart, look in their wallet or look in their credit card statement. Let's say it this way. I think this is helpful. Our relationship with money is a thermometer. Our relationship with money is a thermometer. It measures the temperature, it measures the condition, it measures the environment of the heart. So that's one side of the coin of what Jesus is saying. But money's not just a thermometer. Money is also a thermostat. See, it's not just a thermometer that measures our desires, it is a thermostat that works to alter, that transforms our desires, that shapes and reshapes them. So let's say it this way giving is both a thermometer that tells of the heart's condition and a thermostat that alters the heart's condition. Thermometer and a thermostat. So it doesn't just expose our desires. It shapes and forms, changes our very desires. And I imagine you've experienced this, right? When we give to something, suddenly our attention goes to that something. And our affections are now attached to that thing in new ways. So attentions and affections, our desires are now hitched to those things. So imagine you invest in the stock market, right? And, and you, you get some stock in amazon or tesla or someone or somewhere right and now suddenly your attentions and your affections are all hitched to the ups and downs of the market if you start to give to monthly miracles or shepherd's gate or to the benevolence fund here the church or to a missionary you'll find an increase in affection an increase in awareness for those things you'll be tuned into what's going on and your heart will be tuned towards those things Right? And so now our stories and, and our emotions are woven into those things that we have given to. We become tethered to them, entangled up in them, often in good ways, often in really bad ways. So our hearts follow the money. So, do you want to grow in your care for those who are in need, those who are in, in crisis? Do you want to care for those who are poor? Then give. Amen. Give unclench the fists and give get involved with your time and your talent and your treasures and when we when it comes to generosity we're not just talking about cash we're talking about time and, and talent like our time is is a gift that we can give to others that we are to live generously with our talents are to be given away the amount of talent in this room like i know a lot of you and like some of the ways you think and the ways you care for people, your, your, your design eye, your brilliant engineering mind, your, your creativity, like the things you do, like it's just, it's mind-blowing. And God has put those things in you that you would become a channel or a conduit to bless other people that this world would see the wonders of the God who made you. And so those too are also to be given away. Do you want to become more passionate about God's kingdom? Do you want to grow more caring for the mission? Well, give your resources to them, your time and your energy and your finances because your heart will follow the money. So again, joyful giving. Joyful giving is a way we know a life is changed by grace and joyful giving is a way by which God's grace changes us and that joyful bit's really important because you can have people give all day long but it's not an indicator of a, of a gospel transformed heart you just have people begrudgingly just like i'm supposed to do this and that is just a legalistic broken down religion kind of way of doing this going if i don't do this then god's going to smack me somehow so i better do it like, that is not how we give we give from a posture of joy because we have everything in our god he has given us everything So the more we are generous, the more we practice being like Jesus, and the more his grace transforms us and habituates us to opening up our hands and blessing other people. Now, here's an interesting thing. Um, So from money, Jesus moves to talking about vision. Did you catch it when I first read the verse on the front end? Jesus talks about money, then he talks about vision, and then he talks about money, So is this one of those spots where like the Bible is clearly this hodgepodge of writers who don't know what they're doing and they just accidentally slipped at this thing. This is brilliant. Okay, Jesus talks about, help me out, he talks about money, he talks about vision, and then he talks about money. Look at what he does. This is so cool. Verses uh, 22 and 23. He says this, uh, the eye, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, oof, man, how great is that darkness. C. H. Spurgeon once said that this this sentence has in its nature the nature of a proverb and should be thought upon often. He, he's right. This is a powerful sentence. So let's think about it. <clears throat> The eye is the organ of sight, right? Now that, that's pretty clear. The eye is the organ of sight. So if one's eyes are darkened, then all is dark. That makes sense. But if one sees with crisp, sharp, like 4K high-def vision, then they can walk in that vision. Okay. But... This is a little confusing, so let's let's press into this for a few. So back to Spurgeon here um, in a sermon of his from 1860 called "A Single Eye and Simple Faith," he says this. He says faith then, faith then is the eye of the believer's soul. Any diseases, therefore, in our faith will bring diseases into the entire man. A more modern commentator, Leon Morris, he wrote this um, in his book On the Gospel According to Matthew. He says, Just as a healthy physical eye means illumination for body functions, so a healthy eye of the soul means enlightened living. In other words, you live well. In short, how one perceives reality is so essential how one sees Jesus, how one sees the Father, how one sees money. These are crucial, crucial matters. So, the, eye, so the idea of the eye as a lamp is, is that light comes into the body through the eye, right? And, and if the eye is bad, it's not working, well, then we bump about and bang about in a blurry and dark world. We carry the darkness within us. It's not just the darkness out there that we can flip a switch and see, it's a darkness within us. Ever run into reality like late night, you know, you wake up out of bed and you don't turn the light on? Anybody ever run into reality? And by reality I mean a door, a door frame, or a wall? (laughs) Yes, I've done this. I'm a light sleeper. I hear noises. I pop up out of bed and I go look and like, I've done it. You know, I've I've hit a wall. Right? My eye... Was working, but there was darkness in the room. But how great of a darkness is it if your eye isn't working? And Jesus says, I don't want you to be stubbing your toes. I don't want you to be headbutting walls. I want you to live in accordance with the truth. So, what's the point of Jesus' basic optometry lesson here? Jesus is teaching us how that how we perceive money and resources is key. Do we see see God as a generous God? Do you see him as a father who loves you and is willing to provide for you? Or do you see money as the go-to to get the security, to get the peace, to get the status that you want? Money, vision, money. Jesus has linked money with our perception of the world. And now in verse 24, he's going to shed light again on the problem of money. So let's finish that. Money, vision, money sandwich here. Verse 24 No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. See, when money becomes our heart's treasure, when money becomes more than money, we've gone dark. We've gone dark. Jesus is teaching us that we need to see money as money. Not as a God that can sacrifice for us, but as a broken and cruel God that we have to sacrifice for. This is a God that crushes us. This is a God that we have to sacrifice for, that we have to put our kids on the altar success, That we have to put our family and our integrity on the altar of success and sacrifice for this stuff that will make us feel important and powerful. It is not a God who will sacrifice himself for us, spill his own blood for us, change us from the inside out so that we can be loving. One is a good God who will fulfill all the promises he makes. The other is a terrible God who will leave us as orphans. And, and here's, here's the thing, though. Let's, let's be honest about this. That there is often a self-justifying, loophole-seeking part of us that says, well, maybe I can serve both if I just play this thing right. Maybe I can serve both, find a middling position. But... But serving two masters is not like having two part-time jobs where you're like figuring out the schedule and putting it all together and going, these two can live together. It's more like having two spouses. How's that going to go? Because by very nature of having two spouses, to be loyal to one is to be disloyal to the other. It's all or nothing. This is a zero-sum game. Totally mutually exclusive. It cannot be both. Or to change the imagery, let's say you're You're skiing down the mountain. You're going really fast and there's a tree right here where Steve is, right? And I'm like, I don't want to go left. I kind of want to go left, but I don't want to just go left. I don't want to just go right. I'm just going to take one ski this way and one ski this way and go straight at it. How's that going to go? You are going to bring all sorts of pain into your world, pain into your family, pain into your church community, pain into the workplace. You will bring... Devastating pain. Greed is an anti-generous life. It is so deadly because it trains our hearts to put our trust and faith in things that will, by their very nature, fail us. It trains us. Greed trains us to put our trust in something that can never save us. And so Jesus wants us to be like him, to be like our Father a cheerful giver, one with a a mirthful, one with a smiling posture of soul. Not cheesy, not, not thin and flimsy, but thick with an eternal cosmic joy. And this joy, oh, this joy runs so deeply in the veins of Jesus. This joy runs deeply in his veins. The book of Hebrews tells us But he went towards the cross. He entered into the agony that he was going to go into, like full force, full furnace blast. He went into that because of the what that was set before him? The joy. The joy of honoring his father who is a good giver. The joy of bringing in his brothers and sisters into the family where you experience true identity, where you experience peace, where you experience joy. He opened up his arms wide and he gave of himself. And you guys know this verse. This is like the most famous verse. I don't even need to finish it. For God so loved the world that he... That he did what? That he held back the good stuff. (laughs) That he held back the most important thing. That he gave the most precious. You do realize the Father and Son throughout all eternity were were delighting in each other. And he gave his Son in whom he delighted. Why? Why? So that we could let go of our small, tiny, pebble-like hearts and become like this Jesus. Become like our Father. And become conduits of blessing in a world and trust that he will take care of us because he is a good dad. This is the good news of the gospel. It's incredible. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's joyful generosity. The cross... Shows us the height, the depth, and the width of God's generosity to people like us, a bunch of used to scrubs. So, in closing, don't forget the lesson of used to scrub. We are either becoming more and more like a dragon more and more grabby, green-eyed, and serpent-like, or we are becoming more and more loving and joy-filled, more and more generous like the dragon slayer Jesus. So let us not underestimate the soul-forming power of what we do with our money. How we use it will make us more beastly or it will make us more human. Joyful generosity is the practice of gladly giving to others what God has gladly given to us. As apprentices, the more we give our time, our talents, and our treasure, the more we practice joyful generosity by his empowering spirit, the more our beastly scales turn to soft flesh, and the more our hearts soften in love, the more we become truly human like Jesus. Friends, grace turns real stinkers like me and real stinkers like you into redeemed, glorious beings full of joy. Thank you, you, Jesus. Lord, we love you, Heavenly Father. You are so good to us. Thank you for your generosity in giving us your Son, which this table represents. Every time we come to this table of grace, we taste of your generosity that you would give us your beloved Son, that we would be free from small hearts and mean minds, and selfishness. So thank you, Lord. Uh, We come to this table now. uh, With great joy, would you teach us as we come and commune together? It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.